Well, good morning. Happy Easter to you. Man, this is fun. This is really fun for us. Thank you for joining us for our very first uh, Easter celebration as a church. Uh, my name is Ryan Ingram. Uh, if you're brand new, uh, you may not know this. Awakening Church was actually birthed or launched just six months ago. So to be all together, uh, this is the first time for us as a church. We've met all together. We have two services, Sunday night, five and seven. And so to be all together at one point uh, in time and celebrate uh, the Easter together, the resurrection of Jesus is just awesome. Thanks for being here. Uh, the, um, the ancient church had this greeting, and maybe if you grew up in church, you, you recognize it, but they would say this line, and then they would reciprocate, and they'd actually do this uh, quite often. It wouldn't just be at Easter time. It'd just be a, a normal way you began to greet one another because you wanted to remind each other of the center point uh, of why you gather together, of what is re- what really matters. And so they would say, he is risen, and then uh, they would say back, he is risen indeed. So can we try that together? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Wow, that was great. I, th- I thought we were going to have to do it twice, but you guys were spot on. And that's what we're celebrating uh, this morning. And I'm like really close to saying tonight because we only meet at nights. Uh, and so this whole church in the morning is a whole new deal for us right now. We had to set up yesterday just to get ready because we're not used to waking up this early. <laughs> but t- this tonight, I almost went there. This morning, we're kicking off a new series called Curious, Engaging Some of Life's Toughest Questions. And I'm really excited that we're, we're jumping into this series, and the reason why is my story is one in which I, I grew up in a Christian home, actually the son of a pastor. Some of you may know him. He's preaching right now at another church in town, and yet my mom's here, so... <laughs> I even went to school to be a pastor. That was a long story, too. But it was in the middle of that moment, I was newly married, that I came to this crisis of faith. All of a sudden, the bedrock, the foundation of my faith was completely just cracked. I began to wrestle deeply with questions, things that I had always taken for granted, things that I had assumed, things that I've heard, and all of a sudden I began to question the deep questions of life. You would think studying to be a pastor, I would have had these already answered, but it was in that moment that I, I had this deep crisis of faith, and some theologians throughout the history of the church have called it the dark night of the soul. It was lonely. I didn't know how to deal with it because I, I, I didn't feel safe to ask questions, to really question my faith. I, didn't, I, I started with this question, is there a God? I mean, really, honestly, is there a God? And what kind of God is he? Is he just maniacal and evil and just out to get me, or does he actually love me? Because that really matters how I'm going to respond to him. And then I got to the question about Jesus and, and who is Jesus, and is he really the Son of God? Did he really do what he said he came and did. And I mean, I wrestled for months and months and months. And just think about this. This was one of those broken moments for me. Here I am. I just got married. This is to this beautiful, godly woman who thinks she's marrying this strong Christian. 
And there is this storm brewing in my soul. And I felt like if I ever vocalized the questions that were going on, I would have betrayed everyone close to me, my family, my wife. And it was through that season, and we'll tell probably more of the story through the series. Through that season that I came to understand, one, that I have a God that's big enough for every question I bring to him. That was huge because there was a point in my life, I don't know about you, there was a point in my life if you kind of grew up in the church, you're afraid to ask those questions because if you ask those questions, you don't want to know what the answer is sometimes. You're curious, you don't want to know, you're like, it's easier to not know and just go on thinking it's okay. And walking through that season, I realized I have a God that's big enough for any question that's thrown at him. Because, I mean, honestly, if he's really God, then he should be able to answer life's toughest questions, to walk with us. And the other other conviction that came out of that as we started a church is I long for this to be a time, not that we, we come and talk about a whole lot of answers, but that this is a place, that church is a place where you get to ask your questions where you don't feel isolated and alone. I was just walking through my neighborhood, dropping off these little blue cards and inviting people and kind of, you know. And this one lady is like uh, trying to explain, we're doing this series and we just want to hear your questions. She's like, I have too many questions. I'm like, no, that's perfect. I'd love to hear from you. That this isn't a place, church has always been a traditional place. Come get answers. This is, come ask questions. So I would I'd invite you, join us on this journey. For the next five weeks after this, as we just simply want to be a community that's curious, that says, okay, let's engage in some of life's toughest questions. Let's kick the tires. Engage around the questions of suffering, around the existence of, is there truth? Let's wrestle with some of these honestly and see where we land. This morning... Our, our subject is kind of picked for us, you, you know, because, I mean, if, if we're really curious, if we're really honest, we, we got to ask, like, one really obvious question. It, it may not seem like a tough question, but, but it's at least a big question. And the question is simply this, can dead people really come back to life? Right? I mean, we got to ask that question. If we're, if we're really curious and if we're really honest, can dead people really come back to life? Because if they can't, this is a joke and we're gathering is simply a, a joke, right? I, I mean, isn't it curious to think that over two billion people are gathering around the world right now in celebration that a dead person came back to life? And if you walked into the room and you're, you, you don't have any religious background, like, man, don't you just have to throw your brains out the door to really believe something like that? How can really smart people, how can educated people actually believe that? Because all the evidence I see is no. I mean, I, mean, I you, you go to any cemeteries lately? Not a whole lot of life going on there. <laughs> Not a whole lot of parties being thrown there. And so we've got to ask that question if we're honest, if we're actually curious. Because it's actually fundamental and foundational 
to everything those of us who would call ourselves followers of Christ believe in. It was, what I find even interesting, even curious, is if you ask this question to those that were closest to Jesus Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, I, I, their answer would, I think, surprise us. Because it seems like those closest to him, his disciples and his followers and, and, and those around, they would answer where many of us would sit in this room and answer, no. No, I've never seen it. No. It's not only improbable, it seems impossible. No. In fact, if you got your Bibles, open them up to Luke uh, chapter 24. I'm just going to read a few verses to give us the context of, of the Easter story here. But, uh, but I really want to dive into that question. Can dead people really come back to life? Yeah, look at the response of the, the followers of Jesus in the earliest times. Easter Sunday morning. Because here's what you'd think. You spent three years with Jesus. You walked. You saw him do miracles. You could see him do all these sort of things. You would think that they would at least have gotten it by now, right? I mean, come on, guys. You, you walked with him. Shouldn't your answer be, well, of course. He said he was going to do it. It says this, Luke chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. A lot of faith there. They went to the tomb, <laughs> expecting, what, a dead body. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, and I love this, by the way, there's all these questions in the Bible where you go, seriously? What kind of question is this? Because the men, these men, we say angels, messengers of God, why do you look for the living among the dead? Well, the answer is the dog, because he was dead. Right? I mean, we watched him. Everybody saw him. He died. He got laid here. And most of the time, dead people don't get up. In fact, all the time we see, they don't move. And so we came here. And they asked this question, why do, you, why do you look for the living among the dead? Well, when we left him, he was dead. That's why we're here. Thank you very much. They say, he's not here. He is risen. And the next line is interesting. Remember how he told you. Yeah, that's interesting. Remember what he said before he died, because this, this is the crux of the matter. If the resurrection is really true, then what he said is really true, and it changes everything. If the resurrection is not true, then what he said is a lie, and we should stop wasting our time, right? Let's just be honest about it. Let's, let's not play games. He says, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of the sinner, be crucified on the third day, and raised again, then they remembered his words. <laughs> now, I love what they did. When they came back from the tomb, they, to they told all these things to the eleven and the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother James, and all the others with them who told the apostles. <laughs> I love this line. But they did not believe the women. <laughs> Why? Because dead people don't come back to life. <laughs> because their words seemed like nonsense. <laughs> And I mean, that's the reality for us. If someone came and told us about this, we, we would agree. We would fall into the same line of logic. Someone's coming back. You know what? The tomb was empty. We'd say, maybe you went to the wrong tomb, or you're just going crazy, because it just seems like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, 
he saw the stripes of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened, and he's wrestling with the very same question that you and I are addressing in this moment. Can dead people really come back to life? More specifically, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he? I mean, if he did, it changes everything. If he didn't, this is a bunch of baloney. Right, right, because here's the reality of the Christian faith for you and I who would call ourselves followers of Jesus. And those of you who are sitting on the outside and looking and, and looking in, Christianity is not based on a good philosophy. Even though there's this great moral teaching that surrounds it, Christianity is not founded on a good person. Even though we look to this good man, Jesus, Christianity was founded and birthed in a single historical event that you can validate if it was true or not makes it either it is true or or it's false. It changes everything. See, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, he can no longer be just a good man. He must be the God-man, and his words we must take as the very words of God. Right? Does that make sense? But if he didn't, Two billion people around the world are just wasting a couple hours in very nice outfits. Right? See, that, that's the honesty we need to actually approach this with. Well, if Christianity is based or birthed out of a historical event, Let's look back and examine what historical evidence do we have? Can we see anything that would help us understand whether this is true or not? Do, do we have any historical evidence? If you got your notes, open them up. If you're not there, it's on the flip side. Let's examine the historical evidence. And I'll give you this morning five historical facts. These five facts, scholars... All major scholars agree on, the majority of scholarship agree on these five facts. In fact, almost all of them is unanimous agreeance, and there's only one that's like 75 plus percent. Now, this isn't conservative for you guys. This isn't conservative like, you know, the, the people who already believe. This is liberal, skeptical atheists. This isn't conservative, um, you know, believing theist. It says all scholarship when they've done the historical research, says these five things, the majority of scholars agree about these five things. And if we look at these five things, let's examine the evidence and see what is the best possible explanation for the evidence that we have. Take a look, fact number one. Jesus was killed by Roman crucifixion and buried in a tomb. First fact we have is that simply Jesus was killed uh, some people have tried to argue that he wasn't even a real person. He was just legend. Jesus was a real historical person. We have evidence of this, and he was actually killed on a Roman crucifixion. We have evidence of this and buried in a tomb. Not only do the biblical sources cite it, because I know if you're really questioning, you're like, okay, yeah, I have all kinds of questions about this. We'll get to that next week, by the way. But extra biblical sources cor corroborate that, if I could even say that word. <laughs> You have the Jewish historian Josephus that talks about the, the crucifixion of Christ. You have the Roman historian Tacitus who talks about it. Even the Jewish Talmud 
talks about this. And in fact, there's actually many more others that talk specifically about the, the execution of Jesus. Modern scholars agree. James uh, Tabor, chair of religious study at UNC and, and deeply skeptic, not a Christian, says, I think we need have no doubt that given Jesus' execution by Ro- Roman crucifixion, he was truly dead. Fact number one, Jesus was killed by Roman cu- crucifixion, buried in a tomb. Fact number two, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Now, now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, let's just start with this. We'll, we'll call this the resurrection hypothesis. We, we have this hypothesis that, that Jesus actually did what he said, and he rose again from the dead. Let, let's look at some alternate theories about how we explain that the tomb was actually empty. You know, one, one theory is this, that there was this hallucination theory, that, that people had visions of Jesus, that there was this mass hallucination that went on. The problem with that is that there was no, there's been no historical evidence either then or now to ever account for any mass hallucination in all of history. There's not this reality that no one has ever had the same hallucination. Okay, well, that doesn't really hold up, and then at the same time, it doesn't account for the body. If you hallucinated, you still have a body in a tomb. Okay, well, well, let's try another theory. Well, the witnesses went to the wrong tomb. Now, I get that part, right? I mean, just think about it. The women, they, they wake up early in the morning. It's early. You're crying. You're sad. I mean, I, I would have went to the, the wrong tomb. I mean, when I'm distracted, I go the wrong way and drive for hours and realize I'm all of a sudden lost trying to get home, right? You just go into autopilot, and you're like, how come I'm in Fremont? <laughs> What's interesting is, one, it doesn't account for the body, and the Jewish authorities, all they would have to done to, to squash this early movement, and even the Roman authorities, because this was a great embarrassment to them, was present the body. Never happened. Well, well there's another theory, the swoon theory. Swoon. I don't know. I just like the word. That's about it. <laughs> This theory is that Jesus never really died, even though all modern scholarship agrees that he was killed because Rome was excellent at execution. They made it an artwork. They knew how to kill people and were creative about it. But they say, you know what? Jesus never really died. He was placed in the tomb. The cool air of the tomb refreshed him, and he got up and went to his disciples. Now, just think about this. laugh. It's kind of funny. You just got hung on a cross. You had a nail through this wrist, this wrist, and through your feet. You had a spear jabbed into your side. You had lashes on your back. You were wrapped, somewhat mummified, in linen. You are laid into a tomb. There's a two-ton boulder that uses a lever to help roll it into place. It actually drops and sinks in. Jesus, because this is even better than the resurrection, by the way. Jesus wakes up, refreshed, moves a two-ton stone. (laughs) Then he, like Jason Bourne's the soldiers outside, (laughs) and shows up to his disciples, disembodied, disenfigured, I'm alive. (laughs) Now that will spark a movement. (laughs) Really. Last one is the, the disciples stole the body. 
This one actually circulated early, early on because it was, it was such an embarrassment that the tomb was empty. There's actually some more evidence we'll cover a little bit later why, why I believe that couldn't be. In fact, I think I believe it would be impossible for it to happen. Uh, but a few reasons here is just think about the disciples who were a cowardly group that in, when Jesus was still alive, they deserted him in his time of need. Uh, think about them as, okay, they're not military. There's military guards. These guards, by the way, they're excellent at what they do. There's a list of 18 things that for night watchmen, that if they don't do these 18 things, their lives are on the line and they will be executed. Two of them is one, falling asleep at your post or abandoning your post. They're, they're staying. So they have to go up against Roman guards, and I don't know if you read a little bit earlier, Peter's not so good with the sword. He was aiming for someone, and he got his ear. No one aims for the ear, okay? This cowardly group, how did, how did they who desert Jesus all of a sudden become courageous when he's already dead? It also contradicts the ethical teaching that they have, Jesus taught and they taught their life. We have five evidence, five facts. Jesus was killed. The tomb was empty. Fact number three, the disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to them. Now I'm not saying, uh, notice what I'm not saying there. The disciples saw him. Uh, the disciples believed, because let's, let's agree on what we can agree on, right? The disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to them. In fact, there's uh, uh, historical evidence of over 500 witnesses that say they touched and ate with him for over a period of 40 days. They were absolutely convinced that the disciples appeared to them. In fact, one of the earliest, or that Jesus appeared to them, one of the earliest writings that we have, it goes back to the very birth of the church within two years of Jesus' death. Resurrection. Is, is this liturgy, is this saying from what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the apostles and last of all to me also. Uh, as one abnormally born. Disciples believe this wholeheartedly. In fact, uh, Ludeman, German New Testament scholar who is an atheist, writes this, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. All modern scholars agree on this, that the disciples fully believed they experienced and encountered the risen Christ. And now, Jerd, uh, and I don't know how to say his name. I'm not German, so those of you German people, you're very offended, probably. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that Jesus literally appeared. He would say that they had visions. He would buy into the hallucination theory. Disciples believe Jesus rose and appeared to them. Fact number four is the transformation of the disciples. Transformations. This cowardly, cowardly group became courageous. First, we see it in the explosion of the church, which began, which was birthed in Jerusalem. Days after his execution, resurrection, in the place where he was executed, 
in the place where the whole city saw the whole thing, in the place with the greatest opposition from the religious leaders of the day and the center where the Roman power was in Jerusalem. In that city, the church was born. In the place where anyone could have said, Nuh-uh. I saw it. There's the tomb. There's the body. You guys are all full of whatever. Nuh-uh. See, there was this transformation of the disciples that we can't explain. That's completely unexplainable. In fact, listen to this. It is unbelievable that a disciple would knowingly die for a lie. See, some of us will go to the point where, you know what, the disciples, oh, they were the deceivers. They were deceiving others. Uh, if they were in on this from the very beginning, we think about the early church and starting this, like, you know, they're going to start this really big movement and they're going to be powerful. All but one of the disciples died by execution of Rome. The last one was exiled on the island of Patmos and died in prison camp. See, see, some of us go, well, people die for lies all the time. Yeah, I, I get that. But they don't really know it's a lie. They believe with all their heart, don't they? I mean, we just think about this in, in the terrorist bomber that gives their life. They believe so into the cause. I mean, they believe they're going to be in paradise with a thousand virgins or whatnot. These are the men... And they set out and they said, no, we saw the risen Christ and that changed our life. And it transformed us from a cowardly group to courageous, to one that had such conviction that when we deserted him when he was alive, walking the planet in our time of need, that we wouldn't desert him and we would die. In fact, I mean, just look at that list. Peter was crucified, actually upside down. James was killed by the sword. Philip crucified. Thomas killed by the spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified. Simon crucified. Andrew crucified. John's the only one of natural death. Bartholomew crucified, Matthew killed by the sword, Thaddeus killed by arrows. It is unbelievable the disciples would knowingly die for a lie. Five facts. Jesus was killed by Roman execution. The tomb was empty. The disciples believed they saw the risen Jesus. Their lives were absolutely transformed. The birth of the church happened in the same city where he was crucified. Fact number five, the conversion of skeptics. See, we can argue from a skeptical standpoint as you know what, they were predisposed. I mean, they were predisposed to believe in the Jesus thing. He had talked about it, and they really, really believed, and they really, really wanted it, and they kind of worked themselves up. And so they had this predisposition to, to see Jesus as this kind of ghostly figure, although they all believed that Jesus literally ate with them. It wasn't just this figure out in the wilderness, and there's one like, you know, like, uh, you know, I was, what's the animal that, in the forest? Bigfoot, there you go. I was thinking of the other term for Bigfoot. Uh, Sasquatch, because that's funner to say. <laughs> it, it wasn't like a Sasquatch sighting. It's like, oh, there's Jesus. It wasn't a Where's Waldo moment where, where is he? I don't know. There he is. Oh, there he is. It's like, no, he sat and ate with us. But we go, okay, they were predisposed. They were predisposed to this. 
How do you explain the conversion of skeptics? I, I wrote three. There's hundreds and thousands of them. Two ancient and one modern. First, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Many of you know him by his Hebrew name, Paul. Saul was born and raised in Tarsus, a university town. He was a, what he called a Pharisee of Pharisees. His father was a Pharisee, strict and religious, and he was in that like uh, tradition. He studied under one of the brightest minds of the day, Gamaliel. He had the greatest education. He comes from Tarsus, this amazing town, this, this college university town. It, it had the, you know, the foundation of Stoic philosophy and culture. He comes one of the highest educated persons around. And he became one of the arch enemies of the church, the, the high priest and the Sanhedrin hired him to actually persecute the church. And that's what he did killed Christians, imprisoned them, and went from town to town. And on one such trip, he had an encounter with the risen Christ that changed him forever. And it was in that moment, the skeptic met the risen Jesus. And from that point on, this man named Saul that we now call Paul wrote a majority of the New Testament, died in Rome, in the name of Christ. You see, Jesus' brother, James, his half-brother, you go, you know, nobody believes you. I mean, especially your family. I mean, family's not going to believe you. My brother's saying he's the son of God. Ooh. He comes to Christ, meets the risen Christ after, only after. I mean, just think modern day, we watch the Chronicles of Narnia and a guy named C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And in the process of trying to figure out how to disprove stuff, he became a Christian. Wrote a fantastic little work called Mere Christianity. Now, let me ask you this. It's just this last little question. What's, what's the best explanation for the evidence? We have five facts. I mean, as an intellectual, as a person who's, you know, I mean, Silicon Valley, you're smart, you're bright, you're well-educated. We have historical evidence that all of scholarship agrees upon. The mass majority of scholars agree and say this is fact, whether they're skeptic, liberal, atheist, whatnot. Well, what about you? What's the best explanation? See, I'd say you have to go to greater lengths to make up things. But the best explanation that fits all of the facts is that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And if he did, that moves him from being just a good man to a God man. If he did, that validates everything he ever said as true. If he did, it means that you and I can no longer treat him as just a good man at a distance that we dismiss, but we must come then to him, the God-man, and worship and bring our life to. See, back to our big question, can dead people come back to life? Jesus said this, I 
and the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. Even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. See, this whole church is founded on the, on the fundamental belief that dead people come back to life. That's why we're called awakening. Because we fundamentally believe that God is currently waking up dead people and bringing them back to life currently. Because the reality is, there's many of us that are going through life and though physically alive, are dead on the inside and searching for something to fulfill the emptiness and the longing and just going through the motions. And Jesus says, quit searching. I am the resurrection and the life. I long to bring new life into you and allow you to live out a new life in this world. See, we misunderstand what he was trying to say. It's not just about life later. It's not just about heaven. He longs to radically change your life now. That you would experience new life today, now. That you would experience a new life in every existence. That's why as a church, we are about the things of God. That's why as a church we started, we're four months old. We built two wells in Zimbabwe. We took time to say, this isn't just a place to meet, this is a people of love, because we've been invited to live in a new life and express the love of Christ to everyone in this place. In this new life, you just live differently. And you experience the joy and peace and fulfillment that you've been searching for. See, I, I've watched dead people come back to life. Watch people far from God experience a life-changing encounter with God and they experience the resurrection and life of Christ in this moment that continues on forever. And I'd just like to invite you. If you're here in this place and you're curious, I'd invite you to Jesus. I'd invite you to life. I'd plead with you. Would you receive Jesus as your Savior? Would you receive him as your very life? That you would invite him in. You'd allow him to do the work in you. Where you can walk out of this place in new life. With peace and hope. Would, would you come to Jesus? See, Jesus had these huge statements that we can't get away from. He said elsewhere in John, the Gospel of John, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the good news that is invited at Easter is really simple. In John 3.16 is this verse, you know, that you've heard around, for God so loved it's about you and it's about me that his attitude and affection toward you right now is not that he's out to get you or against you, that he loves you, that the, the intensity of his love has never varied for you. He is compassionately in love with you. And so he gave his only son for you. That the reality is in your life and mine, sin has ripped us away from true life and relationship with God, true satisfaction life in God. We were designed to live life with God.
says, you can't do anything to receive it. But at your very worst, I gave my very best for you. When you didn't like you, I loved you and I gave Jesus for you. For you. That none shall perish, but have eternal life. That word eternal life simply means life now and forevermore. And I just invite you, if you would like to start a relationship with Christ, step into new life, would you just pray after me? It's, not, it's, it's just a prayer, but it's a conversation with God where you invite him into your heart and you start a new life with him, where you experience the resurrection of Christ in this moment, in this time, for the very first time. Would you bow your heads and just pray with me? And if you're in that place, would, would, you, just, would you just pray this? Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I'm broken and desperate for you. I need you. I believe you died and that you are now living. You rose again. I long to have new life in you. Come into my life and make me new. I give my life to you. Real simply there, and I just, I don't do, we don't really do this very often, but if you just keep your eyes closed, man, if you stepped into new life, I just want to be able to pray for you and just raise your hand if you did that. No one's looking, no eyes there. Praise God. Just raise it up high so I can see. Praise God. Very cool. God, how awesome is it and joy to celebrate on Easter Sunday when we celebrate the risen Christ that you have indeed not only came back to life, but you are now living. That my friends have stepped from death into life in this moment, and we celebrate. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us when we didn't even like ourselves. Thank you for inviting us into life. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.